Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to me. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you surely, man. <laughs> Very special edition of the Second Captain's Football Podcast for you today because we're broadcasting from the wonderful Liberty Hall Theatre in Dublin! (laughs) Well, I asked them to roar. And now tone it down, folks. I did ask you to roar. You're all very welcome to the 2018 Second Captain's Premier League Night with Cadbury. What a job. As you know, tickets for this show went online a couple of weeks ago to World Service members. And this lot in here snapped them up in about two minutes flat. I guess Vladimir Putin was right. Soccer is popular. Soccer is indeed popular. Owen here with my wonderful co-presenter, Ken Early. Hi, Ken. Hi, Owen. How are you? Um, Great, thanks. In just a few minutes, we'll be welcoming someone very special to the stage. Gary Bloody Neville is here, everybody. Cannot wait to talk to Gary, one of the greatest TV analysts in any sport, in my opinion, not just football. Before that, he spent an entire career racking up the trophies at Old Trafford. And if I remember his playing days correctly, he was a universally popular figure with football fans up and down the country. (laughs) All right, maybe not at Anfield, maybe not at Anfield. All right, what a day it is to have Gary Neville on the show. It's the eve of the Premier League kickoff between United and Leicester. And we've just had the latest edition of a venerable institution of English football, but this is the second Captain's World Service. We're not Sky Sports News. We refuse to blow it up too much. Transfer deadline. Can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. I really am looking forward to it. I wouldn't necessarily agree with about football. So, Ken, tell us all about the amazing transfer deadline day news. Well, very little happened. Owen. Um, the top six clubs of last season, Man United signed nobody, Arsenal signed nobody, Liverpool signed nobody, might sell Danny Ings. Chelsea signed nobody. City Exciting day, but signed Daniel Arzani and immediately loaned him to Celtic. <laughs> uh, Tottenham, well, 
Tottenham, Alex Kajelski, the, the Times sports editor, says Tottenham would be the first Premier League club to make no signings in a summer window since it was introduced in 2003. The closest to no signings was the first summer Leeds only signed Jody Morris on a free. And if you recall, Leeds United were in total financial meltdown at that time. So that is a, a bit of a strange one. The, busy, the, the club that's been busy is Everton, who signed Yerry Mina, Bernard, and Andre Gomez. And probably the angriest will be Newcastle, who made the most money, £28 million pounds profit. Uh, and the only team they've beaten in pre-season is St. Pat's. Pog so. <laughs> Pogba didn't manage to get out of his hell at Manchester United, no? Well, I, I find this whole situation very confusing. Um, it seems fairly obvious that Paul Pogba would probably like to play for some, somebody else other than who he's playing for at the moment. Um, but it's not serious for Barcelona to make an offer with two days to go before the transfer. That, that's not serious. That's, that, that's, a, that's sort of stupid, unless the intention is not, in fact, to sign him, but to... I mean, the, the, the reason why it's stupid is that there's no way they can sell a player like this with so little time to replace him. I think that Jose Mourinho would sell Pogba and use the money to sign a couple of players that he can find more of a use for. He's done this before uh, at other clubs, but... You can't do that with two days to go. I mean, Barcelona could still theoretically sign him before the end of the month, but I don't believe that he'd be allowed to leave, unless the intention was simply to start a process which is scheduled to terminate in January or next summer. You know, so again, this sort of method that Barcelona are using, where they just sort of get into a player's head, uh, and it goes on for so long that eventually the selling club is like, no more. I presume we have a few Man United fans here, do we? Everybody happy Pogba's staying for now? Is everybody happy Mourinho's staying for now? <laughs> okay, <that's, laughs> the, decisions, the decisions are made here already, okay. I'm sure you'll all remember Gary Neville's great achievements, especially the United fans here. Champions League titles, the Premier Leagues, the FA Cups. But you may not know about one of the first pieces of silverware he got his hands on just up the road in Northern Ireland. Gary was part of the Manchester United youth team that won the 1991 Milk Cup. None of the other lads from that youth team made it anywhere, I don't think, in, in football. We have a little bit of footage from that tournament, Ken. This is the semi-final penalty shootout against Motherwell. Yeah, I understand that David Beckham had missed the penalty during the match and, and it ended up going to penalties. So obviously they turned to none other than Gary Neville. Now, how do you think he's going to take this penalty? Will he go for power, placement, yeah, or maybe a little dink? Down the bottom corner, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, straight in the room. Straight in the room. It's all, yeah. all out power into the middle. That's not bad. And, and I like the strut here. Look at that. Uh, there's a lot more where that came from. That's what that strut says. What a superstar guest we have for you tonight. The man who's taken football analysis to a whole new level. He played more than 600 games for Manchester United, winning two Champions Leagues, eight Premier League titles, and of course, the hero of the 1991 Milk Cup. It's Gary Hell of a welcome for you there, Gary. Yeah, it is. Uh, I feel a bit isolated over here, actually. Unsociable bastards, you two, aren't you? <laughs> it's a little power move, you know, we just yeah. like to separate you and then do a bit of a grinning. Uh, tell us about that. I don't know if you got a chance to see from the angle you were at there, but you slotted, slotted home. You powered home a penalty, the 1991 Milk Cup. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It was one of the most incredible experiences, that, because... We actually stayed at Harry Gregg's hotel 
So Harry Gregg was there every single day. Nobby Styles was our coach. And you can imagine we're 16, we've just joined United 10 days before and you've got these two absolute legends who are actually, you know, right in front of you. And it's, you look back now and you think, you know, at the time I didn't appreciate it, but then you think now of what it was and the, the, it, it set us on our way really because we won every single trophy that we took part in. We won the Youth Cup, we won the A-Team League, we won the Milk Cup, we won the B-Team, we won every single trophy, the Reserve Team League. And it set us on our way to actually think about winning and how important winning was at United. We'll get on to your thoughts on United at the moment and <laughs> the lack of love for Jose Mourinho. In the Have we signed room. anybody or not? <laughs> okay, no. well, what about that news that Tottenham Hotspur... <laughs> Tottenham Hotspur haven't signed one player in the transfer window. First time this has happened since the transfer window was, was brought in. I mean, Pochettino was putting pressure on at the end of last season to, to make a load of big signings. I think that was something that I've seen over the summer. I mean, United, the scrutiny that United come under is completely different than other clubs. And you just said there about Tottenham. They can go under the radar. I think I saw a Jose Mourinho quote earlier on today where he said that you can make a team that finished second last season look like it's got relegated and a team that finished below them looked like they were champions and I think that's what he's referring to obviously Liverpool and Tottenham who haven't won a trophy uh, for the last few seasons and basically you know Jose won two trophies two seasons ago he obviously finished second last season I think he feels that there is a lack of appreciation for what's gone on in the last two years you talk about Tottenham I mean they've been doing that for years Mitchell Pochettino signed a contract which was an amazing signing for them so you say they signed nobody but they've signed an amazing manager who will definitely uh, overachieve um, punches well above his weight, got a great squad there already and they've got a good team spirit. But you're right, I think that you know, from a Manchester United point of view, looking at it, say, Jose's comments today, the pressure will always be on United tomorrow because if they lose tomorrow United, nobody will talk about Tottenham if they lose on Saturday. No, it will be Tottenham lose, it's a surprise, but it'll come back well, to... So you might. I mean, there's a quote from Pochettino there saying, yeah, I've got, I'm, I'm with full energy... Uh, you know, I was training more than usual during the summer because I thought if one of my World Cup players comes back injured, I have the, I have the possibility to yeah. play. So he's kind of making a joke here, but he, I mean, he did say we need to be brave and take risks. That was the end of the season. And now there's, now there's nothing. I mean, the problem with Tottenham that people have talked about is how can they have a squad that plays at such a high level and pay them a lot less than everybody else? I mean, in, in your experience... Hunger. It, it, hunger, but do, hunger. do players... Do players, does the subject of money ever come up in the dressing room? No, but what's inside the players? What, look, you can put £10 in your pocket, you can put a million pounds in your pocket, you can put whatever amount of money in your pocket, it's got to still be in here. You know, money, money's never won a football match. You know, players win football matches, spirit wins football matches, um, ability wins football matches. And what I think Tottenham have is a group of players who there's no egos in there, don't have egos in that dressing room at Tottenham. You think about England in the summer, the reason I think England did so well was because for once they went into a tournament without ego, without star players. Tottenham have Harry Kane, but he's humble. Everybody's humble in that Tottenham dressing room. They know who the manager is. They're all young. They're all hungry. And that means something. And they all look like they're passionate about the club. And three years ago, when Mauricio Pochettino took over, I went to see him. I've been to see him two or three times. I've got a great deal of admiration for him. And I remember him setting up his... Uh, he looked at his board and he had a big job. If you think about that squad he inherited, he had some poor characters in that squad that you wouldn't really want as part of the squad so he transitioned those characters out of the change room brought in people that he liked players that he liked and now he achieves a lot with them and for me he's done a great job there and I think of Tottenham this season no signings first four games away from home new stadium 
you know, quite a few things going. Players coming back from the World Cup later than any other club. I think eight or nine of their starting eleven were in the final or the third, fourth playoff place. A lot of things are going against them, but you never hear the manager whinging about it. You never hear the manager complaining about it. You hear the manager talking about we are trying to sign players. We are trying to sign players. The fact that nobody really did sign players today, that there wasn't any crazy business on the last day, maybe suits Manchester City best in that, that they seem to be happy enough with what they've got. They've obviously added Riyad Mahrez to a team that I think even you might accept, Gary, was the best Premier League team of all time on an individual. I never said that. No. <laughs> go, go. 100 go. points, Gary. So many Miles points. Go. Go. Don't Miles bring points. me over here and misquote me, whatever you do, you know what I mean? No, I never said that. It was an incredible season. My, my words on City at the end of the season were that def- great teams are not defined by one single championship success. Yes, of course, to win the championship is a great achievement. But great teams, and I've interviewed Pep Guardiola, I've been part of interviews with Pep Guardiola, one with Jamie Carragher and David, uh, Dave Jones, and one with Dave Jones at the end of the season, so two times since the end of last season. And he knows what def- defines great teams, and it's not one single championship. He has to win the Premier League this season, and he seems fixated on that. So do the players. We interviewed Vincent Company the other day, and all they talk about is the Premier League. No distractions, not talking about the Champions League, the Premier League. They know if they win back-to-back Premier Leagues, then they can be... Re- Regarded as a great team. As an individual season, though. Well, it's all right. Yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> I mean, I remember when he, uh, when City beat Man United uh, like halfway through the season at Old Trafford. Yeah. And uh, after that game, he sort of took the opportunity of saying, you know, I'm really delighted that we've shown that, you know, what I do works here. Yeah. And, and, and he was kind of making a point, and he did it again at the end of the season once they'd won everything. But he obviously was sort of on a mission. You know, it's like it's about more than just winning with Man City. It's about proving a point. Do you think he's proven it? Like, has he shown the English league finally how football ought to be played? Oh, that's too grand a statement. That's disrespectful to the achievements of Sir Alex Ferguson, the achievements of Jose Mourinho at Chelsea in that first spell, the achievements of Arsene Wenger and the Invincibles and the way in which that team played. It would be it'd be wrong to say that. Um, <laughs> No. I mean, Pep's good. <laughs> Jeez, but, you know, he's a brilliant coach, absolutely amazing coach, and the way in which they play is it's fantastic. Is it new? Like, I mean, have you seen anything like before? Well, yeah, we saw it at Barcelona seven years ago when he was the manager, but we also saw it with Ajax, if you think about it, when Louis van Gaal was the manager 15 years ago. There's been styles of football that have been like this. He, he got his football from Johan Cruyff. Yeah. You know, we played uh, Barcelona in the Champions League in 94. I was on the bench, and we lost 4-0. And Stoichkov, Romario and Koeman, Ronald Koeman were in the team. And this Barcelona team were absolutely incredible. If you remember Barcelona won their first ever Champions League in 92, or first European Cup in 92, that was the first time Barcelona as a club had ever won the European Cup. This was the football that they were playing. So he's a, a disciple of Johan Cruyff. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, he's evolved it, he's, he's adapted it. We spoke to him the other day, he talked about how he's now working this pre-season on playing against deep defences because teams drop off against him. So he is no doubt an innovative coach. But it's still a, an adaptation to things that we've seen before. Mm. You know, possession isn't new. Fullbacks playing um, high is not new. Wide players playing on the touchline is not new. You know, it, it, these are not new things. But what I have to say is his ability to get a team to play how he wants yeah. is amazing. I mean, the, the thing, what, what impressed me, I mean, you mentioned, say, Ajax and Barcelona. But you could say with Ajax, maybe PSV are good, maybe Feyenoord are good that year. 
most of, most of their games are fairly. The Bayern won the European Cup, if you remember that Van Gaal team. In they did 90, in '95 and '96 the final. It, that team was young. It yeah. was all homegrown, and the football they played was out of this world. But every every week to play against, you know, like the Premier League is just full of these athletes, like full of great counter-attacking teams. Mm. You know, maybe money doesn't get you like the best players in the world, but it does get you really fast, you know, re, you know, killer players in the counter-attack. They're up against this every week. It's, I think it's a much tougher environment to do it in than he had with, with Barcelona or even, or even with Bayern. So it's kind of like a, a best yet type of achievement. I don't know what you're getting at. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, no, what I'm saying is it's unbelievable what he's achieved. I think I have to say from my point of view, the style of football to me is an irrelevance. It is an irrelevance. You know, I, I admire the way that Chelsea played under Jules. I admired the way that we played under Sir Alex Ferguson. I admired the way Arsene Wenger's teams um, played. They were incredible. The football that they played was outstanding. I admire Pep Guardiola's Barcelona and this Manchester City team. But it's not the only style of football. It isn't the only style of football. And I, from, from my point of view, uh, I look at, say, for instance, his achievements with Barcelona to, to overtake Real Madrid were big. Real Madrid spend a lot of money. His achievements with Bayern Munich, yeah, you could argue that they are the outstanding team. But for me, to achieve greatness in this league, and I think he will, by the way, that's my worry. I think he will. I think he'll have to win it again this year and again the year after. And then when he does that, there's no doubt, then you can put yourself... He's won it three times on the bounce with Bayern and Barcelona. But he has to do that at Manchester City, and the achievement's still there to be done. I think he will do it. And when he does he that... three in a row. I think you could do at least two, three. Now, what worries me about City as a United fan is that three years ago I looked at their team and it had sort of, uh, uh, it had Vincent Company, it had Zabaleta, Sanya, Clichy, Kolarov, it had Dzeko, it had Yaya Torre, Fernando, and they were an ageing team. I thought, they're growing old together. And Sir Alex always used to say, don't let a team grow old together. That was one of his principles, don't let a team grow old together. But now I look at them, a lot of those players have left. He's changed it, he's evolved it, got a lot of young players, Jesus, Sané, Sterling. You know, the fullbacks have all changed, they're all a good age, 26, 27, 28. So you think there's actually three or four years left in this team now. So I do think they could go and win two or three championships in a four-year period, and that would define them as a great team. I generally do think that could happen. Gary, Liverpool have now gone 28 years without winning a title. Not that anyone's counting. No. I'm sure. <laughs> Why... Have they failed to win one league title in that period? Like, t taking, taking the Mickey side for a club the size of Liverpool, when you consider some of the teams, even aside from the massive money teams that have won it in the meantime, the fact that Liverpool have, have featured, have been up near the top but haven't won one in that time. Is there, can you pinpoint one issue? One issue? There's many issues, obviously. But one issue would be, that, and in defence of Liverpool, that Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea have spent a lot more money over the last 28 years. They have. You know, you think about the last 15 years and way, the way uh, Manchester City and Chelsea have invested. That's the reason that they've sweeped up, I don't know how many championships between them, six, seven, eight championships between Manchester City and Chelsea. The reason they've done that is because of the vast investment that they've put into the teams. Manchester United, or the period for Alex Ferguson, invested more than Liverpool, or Times invested more than Liverpool. So that's one reason I can think of. The other reason is that the teams that Liverpool have put together haven't been good enough. Simple as that. No, that's another reason. Um, you asked me why Liverpool haven't won the title for 28 years. If you asked me why Manchester United hadn't won the title for 26 years when I was growing up, which was from sort of 1968 to 93, whatever it was, 26 years, I haven't got a clue why they didn't win the league. They weren't good enough. 
didn't, you know, managers weren't good enough, they were out for, Liverpool were better, all these things. So it's happened to a club that I support over a long period of time. I, you can't put it down to one thing, but over the last 10, 15 years, it, it, to me, it's down to investment. But I do think Liverpool have a big chance this season. Mm. I do think they look like they're investing to win the league. In the past, I've always thought they were investing to... It was it was big money. Obviously, they were investing, but it never felt serious. So, what's different about this time then? When you look, what what makes you think that now this time? They've signed well. Mm. They've signed well. So not not just this season, by the way. They've signed previous. They've signed well previously. You think about sort of the signings of that front three, which haven't cost a great deal of money in the grand scheme of things. Salah, Firmino, and Mane. That's a great front three. Uh, you think about the business they with Kaita, getting him last summer, and having him sort of forward bought, if you like. Fabino coming in, and so they seem to have sort of bought well. They seem to have Van Dyke looked like a massive risk to me at seventy-five million. I Did he really? No, not as a player, but seventy-five oh, yeah. million. You just thought that's a desperate, oh, it's massive money that for a centre half yeah. that actually had played at Southampton and Celtic. Knew he was a good player. Don't get me wrong, I'd, but I, I did. I think he would be really the kingpin that would correct that Liverpool defence. No, I thought he would help them and get them better, but I didn't think he would be a real. But when you watched him in the last three months of the season, he was he was massively impressive and better than I thought he was, and that sometimes happens. Well, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, the way they I thought the same thing about the so it's just because it's like who's ever spent this amount of money on a defender? But now you can kind of see Harry Maguire supposedly is the same price. Uh, the goalkeeper then they've they've also the world record for the goalkeeper has since been broken. This is maybe the point. They paid a world record fee for a goalkeeper a couple of weeks ago. That world record's already been yeah. broken. Are they? Did they take the view, and I'd, I'd be interested to know your view on this, that regardless of how high you think transfer fees have got, they're actually going to get a lot higher. So buy the players now because, you know, Harry Maguire's going to be 100 million next summer kind of thing. Is that, is that, how do you think it's going to go? <laughs> To be honest with you, I think there are many transfers over the years that make you sort of think, oh, you know, make you stand up and think, how's that happened? I remember when Kyle Walker was bought for 50 million last summer from Tottenham, and I thought, wow. I'd worked with Kyle Walker for four years, really good defender, good fullback, brings a lot to the attack, you know, powerful, strong, uh, big influence down that right hand side. But I thought, 50 million, wow. City spent 130 million on fullbacks. Jamie Carragher once said, anyone, no one wants to be a Gary Neville. <laughs> now they're spending 130 million on them. So I think, wow, how, how can. And I just thought that maybe. And then the, the, the Van Dyke signing 75 million, the Ronaldo one a few years ago of 80 million. But even thinking back to Alan Shearer at three and a half million, yeah. you know, you can transfer your mind back to that day. For a player from South uh, It was more weird that, that it was Blackburn spending it, surely, when, when Shearer. You know, like, I mean, well, it was, oh, time, no, Blackburn, are really serious. At the time, that signing and the signing of Sutton for four and a half really shook football. And it, it happens, and you think, wow, these signings, these big moments. And then you think the sort of the, the signing of Mbappe and Neymar at 180 million. But all of a sudden, Mbappe and Neymar at 160 million, look, you're better off getting one good one for five, six years. Then what happens is if you don't like them, you, know, you see like United with Di Maria, 60-odd million, then you have to get rid of him. Then you spend another 60 million, Martial, 58 million, you might have to get rid of him. So you spend 120 million, you might as well go and buy the first one for 130 million, get the one right. <laughs> no, you know, it's, it, that, 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 that's, 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 the, that's the reality. And, you, you, you know, what I think always about, say, for instance, the sign of Rio Ferdinand for 30 million, it, in, in, in hindsight, it was gold. 
It was cheap. So it is only going one. Do you think it's only going one direction? I mean, because Ken asked, should you just pay the big I'm money now? Sure. I think bigger? it will plateau a little bit over the next few seasons because you know, obviously, I'm I'm in the media with with Sky, and when I look at the sort of TV deal that was done last time, it was 5.1 billion shared between BT and Sky for the three-year deal. Domestic 5.1 billion, overseas was about five billion. I think it was about nine, ten billion. This time it's reduced to 4.6, which so come down by 10%. So the domestic TV deal in, U- in England, UK, has come down. So I know that I know that they're having to, they're making up for it with the international deal. But then there's only so much money that's there. So for instance, if the if if the deal went up to seven billion over three years, yeah, the the, the wages and the and the and the fees would keep going up. But I do think that the shift, that big jump from I think it was whatever it was, a two point five billion deal to a five billion deal is now coming back down a little again, a little bit again. So I think that we will see a little bit of a plateau. You mentioned Jose Mourinho's quote earlier on, Gary, from today. He's talking about how it's hard to remember we actually finished second. He suggests that the media have built up others who finished behind them. Might have been looking over at Anfield there for that, I don't know, into world beaters. And he says that everyone's being negative. Uh, he's making out that people are being negative about Manchester United. But is it fair to say that, like, I don't know if they were castigated last season for their second finish. A lot of the negativity is actually coming from him, you know, from his demeanour preseason, the kind of stuff he was saying in the tour of the US, is it actually the manager who's putting out the bad vibes and creating this negativity? I think when Jose Mourinho said a few weeks ago that he'd handed his list to the CEO four months ago and told him the players that he wanted, he was calling it onto the board and, and creating it, not creating attention. There is attention there, there has to be. Because usually when a manager goes and does an interview, it's usually the language that you hear is we're trying to, we're working really hard to, you know, to try and sign players, not I've handed my list to the CEO. So he's obviously looking at the CEO and reading between the lines, I have no inside knowledge of the club in terms of what goes on in the boardroom or what goes on. I genuinely don't. Uh, my view is that what's happened is, and looking at, say, Perisic last summer, Perisic this summer, he wanted him. He's not being supported on that deal. He's not been supported on the deal of, say, swapping Martial for William, if that was ever put on the table. We're, we're looking at, I'm reading the media reports like you are. So I think what's happened is that basically he, potentially the club are reneging maybe or pushing back on maybe deals that the manager wants to do. And that's always going to create attention. That's the only reason I can think that Jose's calling it on publicly. If he was being supported, he wouldn't call it on publicly with the board. No manager would. Why would they? So in the last season, he wasn't calling it on with the board. When they, would, when they did the deals that they wanted to do, it was, seemed to me that there's been a bit of pushback on certain deals. And maybe it was the Alexis Sanchez transfer that's pushed them over the edge a little bit and thought, 29, big money, you know. And also, I can look at it from the board's point of view and think, well, hang on a minute, I've, we've spent £700 million in the last five years, mm. six years, since Sir Alex retired. And United do need a centre-back. But then if you were the board who are non-football people at the end of last season, you'll have thought, we've got Blind, Rojo, Jones, Smalling, Bailly, Lindelof. That's six. Six centre-backs we've got. And we've spent over 100 and odd million on them. So if we get another one or two, we've got eight. We need to get rid of some, don't we? So if I'm the board, I'm looking at it that way. If I'm Josie, I'm thinking, well, I inherited Jones, Smalling, Rojo and Blind. You've got to get rid of them. They're your players, not mine. And that's the tension that seems to be existing for me. And I can see both sides of the story. Because Jose is only here to do one thing, and that's to get the best team on the pitch to win the league. The club are there to protect the interests of the club, which is the investment, the value, not lose loads of money on players and having to get rid of them on the cheap and then spend loads of money and, and get players. So there is, that, there is that tension that you can see 
And both sides have probably got a, a fair point to make. Yeah. Uh, it does strike me, though, that, that if you hire Jose Mourinho, uh, who I think is doing exactly what he's done at, at previous clubs of his, down to this, this summary, you know, they're talking about the list that he handed in in April, and this, he, the same thing happened, was happening three years ago with Chelsea. You know, he was like, I wanted this player, that player, and they didn't arrive because I think the board similar to what you've been saying, the board of Chelsea were like, we don't want to sign 29-year-old players on really high wages. Um, I mean, you know what you're going to get with Jose Mourinho. So if you hire him, then surely you should agree to, to do what he wants. I mean, if, 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 you, if you don't want to sign older players on lots of money uh, who are going to be short-term, and if you don't want to sort of... If you, if you are aware that your manager is going to put public pressure on if you don't do it, don't hire Jose Mourinho, but if you do, then do what he says. I think that's what's happened in the previous two seasons, but then I think there's obviously been a straw that's brought the camels back and that there's a signing that's come along that he's wanted and the club have thought, no, I'm, not, I'm pushing back on this one. And as soon as you push back on a signing, it can only go one of two ways. The player manager will accept it and understand the business reasons behind it, or he'll say, you're not supporting me. And I would say there's probably been one or two deals. It feels like there's been one or two deals. The only reason I can think that Jose Mourinho made it public around that sheet of, and that list of players that was given to the board three, four months ago is that he feels as though he's not been supported on one or two signings. I can, I can, that's the only conclusion I can come to. So, so why not do what... I mean, you mentioned Pochettino earlier and his attitude to, to this. You know, he, he said, let's be brave, take risks. It comes back, we're not signing anyone. He goes, OK, <laughs> you know, maybe I can play. <laughs> Uh, and, and he's positive, and, and people are, you know, as you said, the attitude is, is there. This is not like that. This is kind of a bit more pointing of the finger. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. By, by calling it on with the board in public, he definitely is creating attention and is pointing towards the fact that he's not been supported in some way, I feel, or that he deserved better backing. And I agree, Jose Mourinho was brought into Manchester United to do one thing, that was win a league. That's it. Forget your Europa League and Carabao Cup. They were good stepping stones in the first season. But the three-year project, the three-year deal for Jose Mourinho initially was to win the Premier League title and not to go 26, 28, 29 years like Liverpool are doing now, like Manchester United did between the Busby and Sir Alex Ferguson eras, where they, don't, where they go for long periods where they don't win the league. And he was brought in because he's a serial winner. He's won the league wherever he's been. So he's been brought in to do it now. And... Yeah, you're right. He maybe does want to sign 26, 27, 28, 29-year-old players because actually they're the players who are in the peak. They're more mature. They're physically developed. They're mentally developed. They're experienced. They've made their mistakes as young players. If you sign a 21-year-old, me, anybody, you're going to make mistakes. You're still not matured. So he would want to sign players who are ready to go now to win now. And I think that to me, it isn't a surprise, I agree with you, that he would want to sign Perisic and Willian. But once you've spent 120 million on Perisic and Willian, and in two years' time they're 32, and then you need two more wingers then to replace them, the board are probably thinking, well, this is going to cost us 250 million, really. Because in the next two years, I'm going to have to replace them, maybe. Or, you know, and that's the thought that, that's the, that's the, there's been a lack of long term. From the minute that David Moyes was sacked, the club was reacting. The club was reacting to... Why, so, sorry, we're gonna, why do you put it at the end of David Moyes' time there? Why, because why you... the club had... The club, Manchester United, had a 100-year strategy. Appoint a British manager, play great football involving wingers, bring homegrown players through. That's it. Simple. Three things. They appointed David Moyes, which was a, who's a, who'd done a great job at Everton, credible coach, served his time, deserved the opportunity. That's what Manchester United have always done. They've always appointed 
an up-and-coming British manager who they feel can take the club to the next level. They've always supported the, 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 the homegrown players and they've always played exciting wing play football. That's what they've always done. When David Moyes got sacked, all of a sudden they were in reaction mode where that wasn't part of the strategy to sign David, sack David Moyes. It wasn't. Because he was given a seven-year contract, they were thinking this is next three or four years. We're going to support this manager. Sacked him after eight months and all of a sudden you're reacting. It's not a long-term strategy anymore. And they, didn't, they then came away from their long-term strategy and values and principles to go for Louis van Gaal, who then brought in 11 players. Schneidlin, Depay, Rojo, Blind, Shaw, Herrera, Romero, Di Maria, Falcao. I know them all. <laughs> that's, quite, that's actually quite impressive. <laughs> Martial. And there's one more. Damian. There you go. And how many of them are in the starting 11 in this Manchester United team now, today? 11 players, 260 million. So Josie's that, so then he gets sacked. And that philosophy of Louis van Gaal's, which is a great philosophy, wonderful football for what he wanted to do, wasn't Manchester United's style of football. So the fans in the end weren't happy with the football. Stadium was starting to have empty seats. They, they sacked him. Then they thought, right, we need to, we need to win. So they're bringing Jose Mourinho, who likes powerful, robust, strong football players. So out those 11 go, nearly. Three or four of them still left. Some of them still hanging around in the squad somewhere. This is what's happened, by the way. I know it's, it's, it's a horror story when you think about it. So the, the sacking of David Moyes has created this. And then you now have Jose Mourinho's brought in Lukaku, Matic, Fred. Mkhitaryan. Bailly, you know, Mkhitaryan. And now you're in a wave of players that suit Jose Mourinho's style. And then what do you do? You have to believe in him. You have to stick with it. You have to. You've gone too far. Because if you change again, and let's say Mauricio Pochettino comes in, he likes hungry, young 23, 24-year-olds. He likes pushing up the pitch and playing high. That means he likes certain types of defenders. He likes players who can press from the front. Well, how many Manchester United forwards do you see that run around like... The Tottenham ones, not a lot. I watched Liverpool press from the front. With, you, know, you, think about, you think about Jurgen Klopp. As soon as he came in, he got rid of Benteke. He brought in Firmino, he brought in Mane, he brought in Salah. Players who can run fast, first and foremost. They're good players, they're great players, in fact. But they can run fast. You think about Richard Pochettino, he wants players with energy who can run because they play high-pressing game, they push up the pitch. Jose Mourinho's happy to sit back a little bit deeper, so he's happy to have a more robust, more physical-type player. You then bring in Mr. Potatino, you then got to get rid of the robust physical type player and bring in. So your strategy is not long, your strategy is always reacting to the manager rather than the club having the values. The club have the values, the club sign the players. The coach obviously has to buy into it, but the coach should be appointed based upon the values of the club. This was my big point three, four years ago. Ajax, Barcelona, and Manchester United are three bastions, I believe, in Europe who have styles of play. Ajax always have a style of play that never changes. Barcelona, it never changed. Manchester United always played 4-4-1-1, 4-4-2, two wide players. Historic. It's ingrained into the club. Don't change. Don't make short-term decisions. Point the manager rule, stick to the club's values, sign players who meet the club's values. What they've started to do is, is go away from long-term strategy and thinking to short-term thinking, and you're ending up like this. And that's what's happening at the football club. And it's... It's understandable because the, out of Sir Alex Ferguson, it's a big change. 
I can see why it's difficult. I can see why you want to be desperate to win trophies. I can see why the game's changing. You're never going to have a manager who's going to be there for 20 years in the future. But on the other hand, as a Manchester United fan, it's painful to watch. It's painful. And I like Jose Mourinho. I want him to succeed. I want him this year to go and do it. But it's painful watching the whole thing over the last six or seven years because in the meantime of us not winning the league, we have lost that something. We've lost something. Gary, are they actually desperate to win trophies, though, as you say? is the pri- oh, This might sound like a stupid question, but as a company, is the priority of Manchester United at the moment to win league titles? Or is it to become, as Richard Arnold says, the biggest TV show in the world? Ed Woodward says playing performance doesn't really have a meaningful impact on what we can do on the commercial side of the business. Has the football lost out? And actually to have a Hollywood kind of uh, manager in Jose Mourinho is the perfect reality TV, sir. No, I think, I think I mean, look, you know, Ed Woodward's statement that you've, you've, you've quoted there could be read in many ways. What he means is that the business side of the club is robust and strong, irrespective of the club's performance on the field. And that's a positive. That's not a negative. He wasn't saying the club, the football doesn't matter. The club have spent £700 million on players in the last five, six years to support the football side. So there's been a large investment into the football side uh, in the last five or six years. Um, what I would say is that the performance of the team should always be the priority of a football club. Always. But, but, I don't but, think, but is it? But I don't... Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I mean, I remember yeah, seeing I, a I talk... I think it is. Honestly, I think it is. I, I, yeah, of course they sign lots of sponsors. But let's be clear about this, by the way. Manchester United's model of commercial... Sponsorship is being followed by every other club, every national association in Europe. Oh, they've been doing it. They've been and leading the way the, 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 for, since so the early clear, 90s. What, what Manchester United have been doing in terms of stadium development, in well, they, they were 20 years ahead of Liverpool in the stadium development. That's why Liverpool fell behind. It's one of the, one of the other reasons Liverpool fell behind. United were getting, having 30,000 people more every week. They were having a bigger audience, bigger capacity, bigger income, more hospitality. So United were, you know, Samat Busby built... That first stand in 19, whenever it was, 60-something, with the idea that it would, all, it would continue all the way around. And he put the first hospitality boxes. Sir Matt Busby put the first hospitality boxes into Manchester United. Not a commercial guy. This is a vision of a, of a football man who saw where football was going. And he did it out of being on tour in America and seeing baseball and seeing people watching the game with a drink and thought of it as a positive. So the idea that, you know, Manchester United has always been a commercial animal, by the way. This idea that Manchester United has always been this sort of like fan, it's never been... But I, I do wonder though, if, like I remember seeing, uh, I went to see Richard Arnold do a talk a, a couple of years back where he said, uh, he was just, he was talking about like the success of, you know, United's commercial, social media, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, our, my philosophy is the more successful I am off the field, the more successful I'll be on the field. Basically, we make lots of money and then we spend it on the team and the team wins and it's great. But it's not like that. Like, Man, Man United like are the richest team in the world. But why is it not like that? Because... They, but, but, they, no, but, well, say, for instance... But why is they, it not like that? Because, they, because they're the richest team in the world. They because make, of what? Because of what? Not because of gate, not because of gate income. No, but, because, because of, of commercial income mainly. So, yeah. so, this, so this is what Woodward and, and Arnold have been, have been doing. And but they've that, done but, this job that, very well. But that was their job. But, where, but where's, the, where's the transfer of this money? Where, that money should be going into the team in a way that it's not. Like, uh, they make, say, 250 million euros a year more than Chelsea or Liverpool. So 250 million euros, if they just made that, would make them, I think, the 15th richest club in the world. So it's, it's an enormous I, I, amount. And yet Chelsea and Liverpool are the two teams who are... Like, Manchester United should be the biggest spending team every year. 
in, but, the, in the Premier League. But, they should be putting the boot down. Sorry, just, just I mean, just we, we need to get back to facts here because there seems to be a bit of emotion creeping in. <laughs> I get excited, by I looked, I looked at this last week, and I don't remember the exact numbers, and I wish I had my phone with me. I think Liverpool's net spend in the last five seasons is 140 million. Net spend. United's, I think, is something like 500 million. They tripled Liverpool's um, spend on players. So, what you've just said really isn't true. Well, no. No, what I said, what I said is true. What I'm saying is they should Manchester be... Manchester United do spend more every single season. They, they, haven't this, they haven't this transfer window. I get it. I, I think there's a big tension between <coughs> boasting about being the richest club in the world, well, which, which happens every year, I'll come and, yet, and, and, and then saying we're not going to be held to ransom for players. You know, no. we're not going to... No, you, you've got a manager who's, who's, who's no, firing shots across the bed saying we let's want be, this, we want that. Let's be balanced about it and I, I, I'm not happy with everything that I see at Manchester United over the last five, six years myself so let's, let's be clear about that. But Manchester City pulled out of the signing of um, I, forgot, I forgot, Sanchez. They pulled out of the signing of the kid that's gone to Chelsea I forgot his damn name, the midfield player. Jorginho. He said, no, no, that's our value we're not putting any more in him. They're clever. Manchester United back out of signing of a player like Perisic and they've lost the bottle. The perception towards Manchester United at the moment from us, the media, is negative. When other clubs do it, it's a positive. And that's the only thing that, correct, the only thing that makes us feel that way is wins. Wins. Manchester United are an animal when it comes to the commercial operation. Every other club, I'll repeat what I said, every other club, including Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, they're all following Manchester United's model, installed, instilled, sorry, by Richard Arnold and Ed Woodward. They were the, I can't remember Ed's title when he was actually, when David was there, when David Gill was there, but he was... Um, executive Vice Chairman. Or executive like Vice Chairman, and Richard was the commercial director. They were responsible for the commercial side of the football club. David was responsible for the football side of the football club, Sir Alex Ferguson. The problem isn't the commercial side of Manchester United. The problem is the football side. Everybody would think that the appointment of Jose Mourinho would have been a great appointment for Manchester United to win trophies. That they would win trophies under Jose Mourinho. Well, I don't think everybody would have thought that, but I think somebody who didn't know a lot about football would have thought that. What, the Manchester United... Jose Mourinho? Yeah. That, 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 that Mourinho would be the right... What I'm saying is, I, I'm not saying... I don't know what you're saying, to be honest with you. Okay. I mean, all I can look at. Jo is, yeah. One oh, second, no, sorry, can't can, go. I'm yeah. saying if you if just you, make make this if point. You got, if you found someone on the street, you already interviewed me. If there was someone, if there was someone on the street who didn't really follow football, and you asked them to name a football manager, the name they probably come up with would be Jose Mourinho. So what I'm saying is, if I didn't really know a lot, Jose Mourinho is the biggest name, and I'd be like, he can't be that bad. Sorry, I don't. I, I've lost. Are you saying that Jose Mourinho was the right appointment for Manchester United to win trophies? Well, uh, not in my opinion. Not in my opinion. But I can. But I think he was definitely the biggest name on the market. And no. I think. I think it's more the question of fame. It's more the question of big names no, no, that no. the that the decision makers are going for there. No, it's it, no. it's not about football. No. It's not about values. You talked about no, no. The, the loss of values. No, no. Well, it's no, my, it's my like point, who's my, famous. My point. Is, no, it's not who's famous. Jose Mourinho has won trophies with every single club he's been at. That's just a, f a statement. It's a fact. But do, Let do we me write finish. off what happened to Chelsea? <laughs> For fuck's sake. <laughs> well, this is going splendidly, everybody. Oh, my God. Jose's won trophies everywhere. Jose Mourinho was brought in, without a shadow of a doubt, as a hitman to win trophies and win the league. 
to remove that burden of the years passing by where Manchester United don't win the league. That's what he was brought in to do. He was supporting the, in the transfer market. And on, in the first two seasons, he's moved from, was it fourth first year or third? I can't remember. Four, four? He, he was sixth the first year, I think. Sixth. Sixth and then second year. Oh, sorry. Sixth, but they qualified for the Champions League through the Europa League. So, sorry. So, sixth the first year, up to second, winning two trophies. If you just said to me when he came in, would he win the trophy, would he win the league within the first two seasons? I would have said yes. I would have said yes, because he always has. You know, you know, historically, he's always done that. He, he, he wins leagues. And the club have invested in him. Now, it's a bump. There's obstacles in the way. They haven't won the league. Pep's built a brilliant team. Manchester City, they've got 100 points. And we're all losing a little bit of faith. But this is the time now for the board to stand strong. This is the time for Jose to perform. This is his biggest ever challenge. This is the time for the fans to get behind the team and say, right, this is it. And now, if the club don't win games in the first two or three months of the season, those black clouds that are circling above this football club, our football club, Manchester United, will open and it will pour and there'll be thunder and lightning. But if they win three or four matches, five, six matches, seven matches, all of a sudden, City lose one or two matches. You don't know what can happen. And all of a sudden, that siege mentality could kick in. So we've got to wait for the football season to start. This is all hypothetical, my friend. <laughs> Just to our listeners, by the way, I am still here in the middle of all this. <laughs> Haven't spoken in about 25 minutes. I knew I was in trouble when they parked me over on a massive big Chesterfield settee about four metres away from them. <laughs> We're looking forward to seeing you in Sky Sports during the season. Gary, obviously we saw you on ITV in the World Cup, which gave you the best seat in the house for, uh, to see two of your fellow analysts go head-to-head. Check out how happy Gary Neville looks during this exchange. We talking about the football's coming on. Do your impression. We wasn't talking about the final one. We were just having a laugh with you. The fact is, we were trying to just like, we were happy. Yeah. You weren't happy for us being happy at that time. But I think that we were. I don't mind you uh, being happy, but you're, you're, you're like getting carried away. <laughs> and I was right. You were planning the final where the parades were. No, we were. You, well, you were. Know. You were talking about no. it. You did a reality check. No, we were. Why, why, should, why should we get excited about it? It was, it was something. Yeah, get excited. excited Listen, get excited about. when they get to the final. No, but the, this was excited. the semi final. The group match. People didn't even expect us to get to the semi-final. Why couldn't we be excited about being in there? Just take it one game as a Before the game, everybody game is thinking that we'd be Before the game, about the final. Yeah, but everybody thought that we'd be crazy before the game. Why should be excited about that? You know how hard it is to get to these big finals. Or even get to a World Cup. Final. You're talking about finals. <laughs> final. You know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Relax yourself. He's going to cave me again. What did you make of Ian Wright's Roy Keane impression? To be fair, the, the, I, I thought it was really funny because it had been building off air, you know, in between the breaks for about, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes. But then there was a point where I stopped really laughing and thought, careful, righty. <laughs> <laughs> no, to be fair, they, they, they both absolutely got on brilliantly off, off screen. And I think to me that is, that's compelling punditry for me. Because punditry should be about not just analysis, not just about tactical things, not just about all those things that, you know, the insight that you try and telling people at home what they can't see because of we've got the big cameras and all that. It's about passion and the emotion of, you know, like me and you just having a row five minutes ago about football. <laughs> that's, that's important. People, you know, people in a pub 
talking about the game, they disagree over the quality of a player, a manager's signings, where they need to strengthen. And that sometimes happens in a studio where it comes out and you see the emotion and the passion. To me, that's a big part of punditry. It struck me watching, when you and Roy Keane were on together, watching you was interesting because it looks like you're quite, quite comfortable with him in a way that maybe other pundits mightn't be. You've probably seen it all before, I guess. To be, to be honest with you, I, and it's not just, I mean, even with Ian Wright, it's the first time I've seen Ian Wright for seven or eight years. I've played for England with him and, and stuff like that. But you don't, when you're playing at United, like we did for 10 years together, or like with the other lads, you're literally with each other every minute of every day, it feels like. You know each other inside out. You know, the, you know everything. And to be there for three, four weeks, you know, Ryan was there. Roy was there, you know, uh, my brother was over there, Rio was over there, Patrice Evra was over there. It was a joy. It felt like being in the changing room again. That's the one thing I miss about... <laughs> Just something. I fucking thought that, you know. <laughs> You're wearing the same shirt. <laughs> and you know something? I've got a lot of shirts. How unlucky is that? <laughs> Shit. It's a nice one, though, Can guys. we have a half time and I go and change? Cheeky bastard. <laughs> We've got a tweet in here from on, the, on Roy Keane. For, I promise we won't talk about Roy Keane for the entire rest of the show, but, you know, people are interested. This is from John thank, O'Dowd. Thank yeah, this is a tweet from John O'Dowd. Highbury tunnel incident. When a 5'10 inch Roy Keane leapt to the defence of a 5'11 inch Gary Neville <laughs> by telling Vieira to pick on someone your own size, did you think, A, what a great captain and leader standing up for me. B, way to make me feel, like a, feel small, Keane, oh, you tosser. Or C, other. Um... You, you do recall the incident, no, I've told I this story. I've told this story a lot, and I told it, to be fair, I think five times today. <laughs> well, I'll tell it again. <laughs> it, it went back to the... It went back to the... Um, it, can you wind it back a bit? I don't know if we can wind yeah, it back. I think it's no, playing away there now. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, what, so what have we got here? What are your recollections? Yeah, so basically what happened was it was the first game of the season against Arsenal at Old Trafford. Me and my brother had kicked Reyes, if you remember, all over the pitch. Um, <laughs> and at the time, there was a lot of furore about the unfair treatment of the Arsenal player, about Reyes, about you know, Arsene Wenger had come out and been massively critical of the referee and said that they were bullied and all that sort of stuff. And we went into the second game and Vieira chased me off the, off the warm-up. This is before the game. When you go up for the warm-up and you know, your fans are taking pictures and everyone's smiling, no one will have seen it, but Vieira chased me up the tunnel screaming and shouting, saying, you won't effing kick our players. So I went into the changing room and it was always goalkeeper, me, Dennis, Roy. Every game I played, it was always that. And so after Dennis left and then Roy left and I left, but you know, generally it was always that was the, the, the lineup. I turned around to Dennis, who was next to me, and just said, I think it was Dennis playing, by the way, whoever was left back. I said, Vieira's fucking fuming. I said, he's just come up to me, he's, he's going mad, saying we're not going to kick him off the pitch, we're not going to do this. And obviously Roy was next and heard, and then Sir Alex came over and said, what's up with him? So, yeah, we, we discussed it in the change room before the game. Walking down into the tunnel, it's the tightest tunnel in the world. Vieira knelt down near the back of the tunnel, tiny shoelaces, and basically Roy had walked past him and then Vieira stood up near me and started having a go. Roy turned around further up the tunnel and basically started having a go at him. And Vieira had one of those Lucasade bottles in his hand. He squirted it at him towards him. <laughs> and that was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> 
so basically that's when obviously Roy would always defend his teammates whoever it was he would always then you know, there was a massive rivalry between United and Arsenal between Roy and Patrick it was always built up before every single game it was great. Um, you know, great. It was fantastic. In, 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 when I look back now, it was they were they were fantastic games, and that's the point whereby it all sort of kicked off, and then the air was pushed down the tunnel, and that, that that's what happened. I didn't feel like a tosser. <laughs> I mean, if I look like one, that's fine. But uh, now, the likes of Frank Lampard has gone into management this year. Steven Gerrard, obviously, you had to go yourself. But interestingly. <laughs> that was a ni- that was a nice way of slipping it in, wasn't it? You had to go yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even mean it that way. No. But anyway. A little bit like, you know. Here's what I wanted to say, Gary. Frank Lampard. Just cut to the chase. A couple of them have said, TV is an easy life. It's not for me. I'm a competitor. This kind of, they've kind of all said the same thing. I need to compete. The implication being that the likes of yourself and Carragher are having it easy in that TV studio. Now, I don't know if you agree with that because I guess the job is as cushy as you want to make it. And before you, and certainly a number, like people were, were happy to just walk in, but th- do you see it as an easy life, as, something, as a cushy number? No, it's ridiculous. I mean, I'll cover Valencia, don't worry. I'm going to go back and, and talk to you about it. But in terms of television, I've seen some of the greatest players that I've ever played with, ever seen, go into a television studio and become pundits, and they're awful. Yeah. Awful. <laughs> awful. <laughs> Nothing to say, don't know how to deliver a message, don't know how to have that sort of, if you like, that confrontation that Roy and Ian Wright had there, that, you know, because they're a bit, a bit sensitive and think that you know, afterwards we can't get on with it and be friends. You know, that's, so the idea that it's easy and that everyone can do it is rubbish. There are people who are compelling to listen to on television, there are people who are good at it, there are people who can deliver a message, there are people who can connect with the audience at home, the fans. And there are people who can't, so it's not easy. It's like saying anyone can present, anyone can ask them questions, you're reading off that laptop there. (laughs) (laughs) Gary, Gary, I'm the good cop. You don't have to have a go at me. (laughs) I was a low blow, that. No, but you know what I mean? It's like saying anybody can do it. Anyone can do it, anyone can do it. It's rubbish, that. It's rubbish. It's actually on television, you know, to go on television and do Monday Night Football, which is four hours of live television, ad-libbed from the point of when the game starts because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, the first hour we do look at what we're going to say and we look at the clips, but again, there's a lot of things happening there like you don't know when the manager's interview's going to come in, you don't know what the manager's going to say, you don't know what the teams are going to be. So all the preparation we do during the day in terms of the preparation for the match for Monday Night Football, we haven't got a clue what the teams are going to be in the evening. Three players that we've worked on that might be playing or a system could change right on us going on air at seven o'clock and we've got to react to that. So it's, it, it's, not, it's not as easy as that and it's, it's you know, to do... Uh, yeah, sitting in a studio does look like the easiest thing in the world just to be able to talk, but then there are a lot of people who, to be fair, aren't very good at it. Management, without a shadow of a doubt, is a completely different skill, and it's tough, particularly now where the fact that managers don't get given time. You know, the average manager, I think, is 13 months, and it's short-term decisions, immediacy, there's a lot of pressure on them, and it's, it's tough. And from my point of view, no, I don't want to go back into uh, management. I didn't really want to go into it in the first place, being honest with you. Even though I was very tempted to think, well, I want to have a goal. So to... Ma- management's something you've got to immerse yourself in and commit to every single minute of every single day. I'm too immersed in television, in the, in, 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 in the, in the businesses that I have, in Salford, and all the other things. I'm, I'm tied up. I'm, I'm coaching and management was something I was doing in 20% of my time. So the thing for me is, I, the, the, the mistake I made with Valencia is I should have probably said no, but I didn't want to say no because the owner of Valencia is someone who's, I mean, 
uh, you know, partnership with, with, with Salford City and with other projects. I, I wanted to do it. And at the time, I thought I'd sat on television for four or five years talking about how English managers had not had an opportunity to manage in foreign leagues, in international leagues, in big jobs. And there's no doubt Valencia is a big club in Spain, in one of the best leagues. But I made big mistakes. I made big mistakes. What were the big mistakes? Not take, you know, 40-year-old English coach, not, um, didn't speak the language, didn't know the league really, didn't know the referees, didn't know the media. I should have taken, the first thing I should have done was taken a very experienced Spanish, English, dual speaking, dual language coaching staff. I didn't. My brother was already over there, which was fine because he gave me a good insight into what was happening, but he was 38. I brought up Angulo, who was 40, from the youth team, who'd never coached or managed at senior level. And Jordi, the fitness coach from the youth team, who was 36 and never coached at first team, you know, coached at first team. But there was four of us there and none of us had any experience of basically managing at the highest level. That's a big mistake from me. That's a big mistake. I knew I didn't speak the language. I knew there were clicks in the dressing room. I knew it was a hostile club and a volatile club. I should have protected myself and put really experienced people around me. That was the first thing. Second thing was, I'd been warned before I went, my brother had been there, that there were difficulties in the dressing room. It wasn't going well. There were tensions. And there were a couple of players, senior players in the dressing room, I should have insisted were kicked out of that dressing room in the first two weeks, and I didn't do it. I thought I could work with them. I thought I could turn them round. And I should have just gone with my gut instinct. Can, can I just days. ask a bit about that? How do you, how did you know, I, I don't think I can work with these guys. I mean, regardless of the action that, you, know, you, that you didn't take, you know. how, how, like how? It's like, when, it's like when you're in a relationship. <laughs> no, any relationship. You know when it's, you know when it needs to end. It's the point of sometimes you take a long time to do it and you cause yourself more pain and the other person more pain. But you have to, you know, you, know it's, you should be clinical and cut it off particularly when you're in business or particularly when you're in, you know, if you're thinking about a team, particularly, and I look at Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola, and I'll point towards two great managers, by the way. As soon as Jurgen Klopp came in, I thought it was brutal what he did to Ben Take, not giving you a chance throughout the club. I thought it was brutal what Pep Guardiola did to Joe Hart, not to even give him a chance. But he knew straight away, bump, gone. And their clinical, brutal decisions, they, you know, Joe Hart was a big... Big player in the Manchester City dressing room, big player with the Manchester City fans, boom, doesn't fit my boom. And I should have gone in there and I tried, I, I, was, too I was too nice, I tried to work with people, tried to work, boom, I should have, I knew, and I knew it. After 10 days, I knew it. You, it takes you 10 days to work things out. You see people in training, you see the body language, you speak to them a couple of times and they don't look you in the eye and they, you know, that one. And then you think, right, and, and I, sh I should have done that. And the other thing was, I should have been very clinical around the Copa del Rey and the Europa League. I don't want any sympathy at all. As in, don't, don't play anybody of any importance should, in these matches. To be fair, the owner told me, he said, get out of those two competitions because the league was a, was a, was a problem for us. We need to win in the league. That's what killed me. Uh, if you look at my overall record, I think I won something like, I think it was 11 or 12 games in something like, I can't remember what it was, and eight or nine of those games were in the Cups. Every, so I didn't have one free week when I was over there. I played every Saturday and Wednesday from the minute that I went to the minute that I left. Every Saturday, well, it's Thursday for Europa League. Every midweek. So we were playing Sunday. And when you're on that sort of, I call it on the roundabout and you're spinning and results aren't going well, you need to be able to jump off it and just 
pick yourself up. I never had that chance. We never had that chance. The players never had the chance. Not me. Me and the players never had the chance to say, right, let's have three days off. Let's just pick ourselves up and let's start to then get fit. Because obviously when you're playing in the Champions League or through the Europa League and, and, the, and the Copa del Rey, you've then got that sort of wear and tear of fatigue, that you're losing games, the pressure. And I should have gone out of those two competitions early and, and said, right, concentrate on what your priority is. Focus on the priority, not on what the, the, the sort of subsidiary thing is. And it's ridiculous because... I've been a part owner of Salford for four seasons and I've insisted every single year we go out of the Manchester Senior Cup, we play the kids. We go out of the FA Trophy, play the kids. I don't care. We go out of those competitions. And in the FA Cup, yeah, we'll have a go. We'll have a go in the FA Cup because you've got to pay respect to the competition. But the reality is you'll get knocked out of that anyway because you're going to get into it. So focus on the league. That is our priority. And set that one task. That's our priority. Yeah, when you're at Manchester United and Manchester City and Barcelona and Real Madrid, you can then think about multiple assaults on league titles and Champions Leagues, but not when you're trying to do a very specific thing, which is go into Valencia like I was and get them up the league and stabilise them. That was my job. Not to win the Copa del Rey, not to get them in the, in the Europa League. So I made three big mistakes, and they're my mistakes, and I, and I regret them. Not to regret them, I think about them to this day, and I try and let them influence me moving forward into the decisions that I make. The media were pretty rough on you over there. We were certainly seeing a lot of clips. Great answer. It's amazing, isn't it? Everyone loves a sob story, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, just a little more on that, Gary. This isn't revenge, this clip, for the laptop gag you made there. This, I think, is genuinely... It's, it's probably, probably not easy to watch, but it's worth watching. I've got watching. this shirt on. Yeah, I've got, you've got this <laughs> different shirt this time, I think. Now, this is just a little taste of some of the stuff you had to deal with with the Spanish media. How about this for a loaded question after the 7-0 defeat to Barcelona? Good evening. Carlos Martinez, Cadena. Sir, you've mentioned that you haven't thought about resigning, but tonight's humiliation. The other day, so you, somebody asked you a question and you said you thought it was ridiculous. Let me repeat that question. Uh, do you think it would be logical for you to be dismissed after Valencia's performance tonight? Next question, please. Aquí. Over here, coach. I'm sorry, but I, I need to ask in line with this. Just this six times, the by the way. Softest uh, adjective is humiliation, is shame. And you're the coach. It is only logical that one would ask you. You said that you haven't thought about uh, stepping down, but would you understand if you got sacked? Because ever since you got here, the team has not only not improved, but is worse. But uh, I'm sorry, out of respect, uh, but then you said the other day that Next Valencia... Question. I've answered it before. I think I was very clear with my answer over here. So in a situation like that, yeah, maybe take us through what, what happened I mean, to sit there through that. No, to be fair, there's, I've got to add some context to that. I went into that press conference knowing full well that I was going to ask that question. I think I'd answered it three times before this guy came, comes in and asked me for the fourth or fifth time. So I'd already answered the question and said, look, that's a decision for the board. I don't, you didn't play the full thing, you just played the one that it looks like I'm ignoring him. <laughs> no, but the reality of it is, I always say this, by the way, I never once, I mean, I got absolutely battered over there in every press conference. That kind of stuff was going on the whole oh, time, was it? Every press conference, from the minute I went over from, to the minute that, that, that I stopped. If you could play that whole press conference, you'd think, whoa. And we yeah, think I, England, I, I watched it all, and it, yeah, it's pretty brutal. It's brutal. But you know something? I was fine with it, because I'd worked in the media, and they're the questions that I would expect to be asked a manager. In England, 
We always think that the English press are tough, the English press are difficult. They're nothing compared to the Spanish press. They're nothing. And that's the honest truth. The, the Spanish press will ask very direct questions, questions that, to be fair, if you asked an English uh, a coach in the Premier League, he'd feel offended by, he'd feel as though you were sort of getting at him and punishing him. You know, that was, like I say, that was the third, fourth, fifth time I'd been asked that same question. Do you think you should resign? Do you think you should be sacked? And you can only answer it once or twice. <laughs> There's only the same answer can come out of your mouth. But actually, for me, that was a... I mean, it was an unbelievable experience. Um, the whole thing was an unbelievable experience. I know it seems like a thing. People see that as being a massive failure in, my, in, in me. And I can see why people would think that's a massive failure. You know, you've basically been sacked after four months. For me, I like to look upon that as being a defining moment in my life in terms of how I approach the rest of my life because it gave me lessons in terms of making clinical decisions, particularly when I think about, say, for instance, working now with Salford, working to try and get them into the Football League, which is tough. Working with projects that I've gone, working with the university, all these, I think, right, you know, what, what did I do wrong in Valencia? I refer back to Valencia. I don't refer back to my wonderful times, which were like, you know, bed of roses at Manchester United where everything seemed to go really well and everything was perfect. You refer back to your deepest, darkest moments where you think, right, what did I do wrong then? How do I call back on those? That was a moment, that was actually an experience that for me um, has assisted me more since I came back than any experience I had at United because of four months of, it was brutality and I fell short. I actually lost confidence. I've never said this before. I lost confidence. I've never lost confidence apart from a six-month period after the treble in late, two, in late in early 2000 to the European Championships in 2000. I lost confidence for six months then. And I've never lost confidence since. Yeah, of course you have doubts. Can I do this? Can I do that? But in, in terms of a sustained period of time. And where I lost confidence was the fact that I couldn't communicate. On the training pitch, I used to go out onto the training pitch. And you can imagine this scenario. Think of it in your own workplace. You've got the basic of the coach who's trying to give an instruction. And my translator was a, a young analyst who was a Scottish, a David Lamole, great guy. I had to give an instruction in English to, so I had to call David Lamole onto the pitch. He runs onto the pitch, it takes him five or six seconds. I then give an instruction in English. This is while all the team are watching, by the way. This is what happens in football coaching. He then repeats that. The player then asks a question back to David, comes to me, I go back to him, the whole team are watching this. This is a mess. And I was doing this for a couple of months. And in the end, I thought, if I was a player here, if I was a player watching this, I I'd hate it. This is not right. And in the end, I actually lost confidence in going out onto the training pitch. Of course, I was out on the training pitch, but in terms of delivering the sessions, I came away from it. I brought in Paco Ayeristan, who was a coach from Liverpool, who was an experienced Spanish-English speaking coach. I let my brother do more, and I stepped off the field because I lost confidence in the fact that ultimately, even in team talks, a 15-minute team talk takes half an hour when someone's translating it. Because every minute that I say, it's got to be repeated by someone else. It's like this interview now. Imagine we listen to it twice. <laughs> you know, it's true, but you know, we're, we're, going to, we're going to do 50 minutes here. It, this 50 minutes would take one hour 30 minutes, one hour 40 minutes. So it was painful, and it was awful, and I lost confidence in it because I thought, I'd hate this as a player. So I always looked at it pragmatically and fairly. And that was the thing that really, in the end, was the, the lack of planning in the beginning. Not bringing experienced Spanish, English-speaking coaches with me, not doing the right things. You now are in a situation where the Premier League managers have this as a stick to beat you with, or they seem to feel it. Klopp, 
Pep, Mourinho, they've all said a variation of the same thing when you've criticised them too harshly. They feel too harshly. Yeah. And that is, well, you know, he had a go. He didn't last but very that, long. That's also because the, uh, the English media, one of the things that started to happen is they... One of the first questions to the manager is putting to the manager whatever you or Carragher so what, has just said. So what's, yeah, what's, what's, what's started to happen now? It's a new phenomenon. Journalists basically now don't ask questions anymore. They go into the press conference and say, Gary Neville on Sky Sports has just said this. What do you think? <laughs> and what's happened is the managers are coming in, they're biting. I'll honest, I don't care. When, honestly, do you know when Jose Mourinho or Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola have a go at me or at Carragher or whatever it is, all they're doing is enhancing our reputation, or putting put credibility into our reputation as pundits. I never once during my career or in that time at Valencia once took on a pundit, a media, a journalist, a pundit, a presenter, never won or lost a football match. <coughs> so the idea that you hear a manager come into a press conference after and say, Gary Neville said this or Jamie Carragher said this, it's a smokescreen. They're, the, they're trying to basically move the agenda away from the performance of the field, the performance of the players, the performance of themselves, the tactics, whatever it would be. The reality of it is, Sky Television love it and I don't care. I don't care. I'm on television to give my honest opinion, and that's what I will do. When I was playing, people give their honest opinion about me. Some didn't like me, some did, some thought I made bad mistakes, some didn't think I made bad mistakes, some thought X, Y, or Z. I never once, after any game, came on to do an interview, as I can't believe so-and-so said that about me on the television. I'd worked all my life to be a football player, from the age of five to the age of 21. The idea that I've practiced all those thousands of hours and I'm going to allow a TV pundit who basically is talking about a football match to take me off track and take me away from where I'm going. It's nonsense. Even Alan Hansen, though, I mean, no, you know. Did there you, must have been a couple of times you, in your career you, when, you, when you were so, watching TV, someone so said when, something about you. And you so like, when Alan Hansen said, you've never won anything with kids, did any Manchester United football player respond to that at that time? Uh, not until the end of the 1995-96 season. And who then did? I've, I've heard, I've, I've who did? Oh, not, nobody during the season, but... Just something I've always I, said, to be honest, if I was on television now, yeah. I might say the same thing. But what I mean is I've heard it referred, but I've heard basically every single one of those players talk about it since, going, yeah, we all remember... Like, so, it's one of the, mo it's the most famous thing Alan so Hudson ever said. Let, let's look at the individual incidents. Jurgen Klopp uh, spoke about me and fell out about me because of my comments about Loris Carrius. Uh, not being good enough or Mignolet to be the goalkeeper of Liverpool Football Club. Uh, when, hang, hang on, when was hang on. this? When, when was if, the, if they're going to win the league. If Liverpool Football Club want to win the league, these two goalkeepers are not good enough. And that's a fact. Well, can I just ask when you were saying, when you said that about, was it after the Champions League final? Like? No, I didn't say after the Champions League final. Oh, uh, it was more, it was before then? No, no, it was well before that. Oh, okay. oh no, this was, this, this was when he made the mistake against West Ham about 12 months ago. Okay. Oh, I called this long ago. And at the time, if you look back, at, if, no, if you look back, Jurgen Klopp said, he referred to Valencia, he referred to the Neville brothers playing for Manchester United, they don't want Liverpool to win. No, actually not. I was making a statement because I believed it. Not because I don't like Liverpool, not because I don't want them to win trophies, not because I'm a United fan. I don't think Liverpool can win the league with Carrius or Mignolet in that. I made that statement. And he didn't like it and he come back at me. He also said last week he thought he was a bit harsh, if you remember. Because actually, he's now gone out and paid £71 million for a goalkeeper. <laughs> so that's not, but that's not me saying I'm right. I expect Jurgen Klopp to defend his players that he had at the time. And I think he was right, maybe. I personally don't think it's ever a good idea for a manager to take on a pundit. Not because I, I care. It actually gives the pundits more credit and more credibility. It gives them more credence. I wouldn't do that. I'd just 
Oh, I'm not interested in what he says. He can't win a football match for me. I'd almost give it that approach if I was in, the, in their position. So from that point, I mean, I've done interviews with Jurgen Klopp since then. So there's no problem in terms of he comes on Friday night football. So that was the incident with... with uh, that was the incident with Jurgen Klopp. Klopp. Yeah. I don't know what the incident was with Pep Guardiola, but I do remember it. I think it was over young players. I think it was over young players. Manchester City have won the Youth Cup, I think, four times or five times in the last seven or eight years, and so have Chelsea. And I said I thought it was a disgrace that they not, didn't bring young players through. What I would say is that when I saw Foden playing on Sunday and I saw Diaz come off the bench, if they can start to have that young squad with those integration of those academy players who feel the heart of the club, then the rest are in a bit of trouble because that's a magic combination. And it's been proven time and time again you look at the teams who've created longevity and great success over a long period. United in the 60s, you had obviously a Liverpool group of players who had a lot of players who sort of felt, felt the football club. You had AC Milan under Saki, who won three European Cups and they had sort of Baresi, Maldini, Costa Curta, Tosotti, um, Albertini, uh, Massaro, those seven or eight Italian players. You think of the um, Barcelona team that was probably the best team we've ever seen. Piquet, Puyol, Messi, Fabregas, um, Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta. The heart of the club, because every season they're going to come back and fight. Manchester United under Alex Ferguson. Every, those players are just going to come back and die every single year because that's the club's in the heart. So if Manchester City can bring young players through, aligned with the players that they've got now, the rest are in really big trouble. So when you talk about young players, I wasn't saying Manchester City, your know, Pep's a disgrace he's not brought young players through. I was saying Manchester City as a football club, to win the Youth Cup and then not bring young players through, it's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, it's ridiculous that Chelsea and Manchester City have won all these Youth Cups in the last seven or eight years. The, the youth team coaches are doing this great work and they're not bringing through these young players. So it's not good. For, and I, I don't say that because I don't like Manchester City or I don't like Chelsea. I believe it in here. I believe it in here. That's what I believe. I believe you should try and bring young players through. I'll be devastated. We'll sign a lot of players at Salford. But I'll be devastated if we don't bring through young players out of our academy or sign young players and bring them through into our first team. I'll see that as a massive failure of ours. So it's not just something I can live with. I'll, I'll live or die by it myself. So my, from my point of view, that was the, I think Pep re responded to that uh, at the time. Josie, I'm not sure when Josie had a goal, to be honest with you. I know he maybe was a bit pissed off last season. Yeah, well, like the quote was, have we probably given enough to Josie? Enough, uh, it says, some of the high-profile high people in football have gone from players to weak and frustrated managers, and they return to football with the status of high-level pundits. Very, so, very, very quick response. Could be any of us that, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's enough on Jose Mourinho. I think that was towards Alan Shearer, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> We've got a few cabaret, a few... <laughs> Got a few hampers to give away with thanks you know, to Cadbury. One more thing to say. Yes, Gary, go on. <laughs> so before I. No hampers for anybody. Absolutely. <laughs> Turn the cameras off if you want. Let's have a chat. Before I went to Valencia, I was an amazing pundit and I would have been a great coach. I go and try management and do it for four years with England coaching and then four months with Valencia. I come back. How can I be a pundit? I'm actually more experienced. I'm more experienced when I came back from Valencia because I've actually sat on the sidelines. I've got more perspective. I've seen it from a management point of view. And yet, how can Gary Neville sit on television and talk to us about football? Well, I'm going to be there. I played for Manchester United for 20 years. I've coached for England for four years under Roy Hodgson. I've been to Man I'm actually more experienced than people who haven't tried it. It's just the, non the, the thinking is illogical. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hampers, hampers, hampers. Delicious food.
We're going to give a second captain's hamper to our tweeter, John, from earlier on. Uh, uh, yeah, a nice Cadbury hamper. Delicious stuff there. You've got one. You've, oh, beautiful. I don't know if John is around to pick it up. Yeah, John, do you want to come up and pick that up? No, it's no. Do- Owen, Donal and David. John gets a crappy second captain's hamper. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So I tell you, Sorry, do- John. Donal Egan and David Butler. I'll just give you David's question here. Uh, where have we got? Hi, Gary, can you tell us, this is the last one, which mistake you made on the pitch during your career that hurt, hurt you, haunts you the most and which mistake off the pitch? <laughs> Who cares about the first one? Well, the off the pitch one's quite easy, doing this fucking interview. <laughs> this one's from the crowd, Gary, this one's from the crowd. No, uh, the on the pitch one that I think had the biggest okay. impact upon me, again, negatively at the time, but positively in the long term, was I, w- I felt untouchable from 16 to 24 stroke five. Won every trophy, doubles, trebles, Leagues, youth cups, reserve team leagues, everything. Playing for England, I was, you know, you feel untouchable in terms of, you know, you just incredible confidence. Of course, you have bad games and things like that, and you have ups and downs. But then, if you remember the World Club Championship in late 99, 2000, yep. where I give the two goals away, the pass backs to Edmundo and Romario, which were two pretty decent players to give pass backs to, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't as if I was giving it to, you know, two idiots. And, and, and at that point, I'd come back from an injury after the treble, done quite well pre-Christmas, went to Brazil, made those two mistakes and lost my confidence. I referred to it before. And for the first time in my life, I remember playing in, in, in the March, we got back from Brazil, I'd cost us the tournament, it was the inaugural World Club Championship. Um, and I came back and... I felt really lacking in confidence. I didn't want the ball. I, even though I wasn't the most talented on the ball, I always wanted the ball. I always felt as I wanted the ball to serve it into the strikers, into the forwards, into the wide players, overlap, get the cross. I always wanted to do the simple things, but I always wanted the ball. That was one thing that Sir Alex Ferguson measured courage by. It wasn't by going in for a tackle. You always have to show for the ball. You look at players when they don't want the ball and they sort of just drift away from it a little bit. Manchester United players had to take the ball and show risk and expression. The first time in my career, I didn't want the ball. I didn't, I didn't, want, I didn't want to get involved in the game. I remember playing a game against uh, Real Madrid in the quarterfinal of the European Cup in 2000 and, and had an absolute shocker. Went into the European Championships with England under Kevin Keegan. It's, it's the 2001 in Hel- uh, Holland and Belgium. And I had an absolute nightmare. And that, those two mistakes, I never recovered from for six months. And I remember in the summer, I went to see a psychologist. I went to see a couple of my old coaches because I thought, I've got to, I've got to correct this. I'm, I'm struggling up here. I'm genuinely struggling. Every time I said, you know, I've done, I'm a good player. I've, done, I've won trebles. This show, I said, look, am I finished? Have I lost my confidence? Sometimes it just... And I just couldn't get myself right. And, you know, I was reading the media. A lot of people were criticising me. Phil had just made the mistake, if you remember, to knock us out of the tournament, which, to be fair, Phil could never make a mistake without me getting thrown in and vice versa. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know, if the Nevilles can play for England, so can I. It was always two of us. <laughs> I always remember, by the way, that first chant every time I heard it. It was at Fulham. The, posh, the poshest ground in the world. In the warm-up. And he's like, just... Yeah, play for England, so can I. <laughs> and Scorsi, who, to be fair, is deadpan humour. <laughs> Starts laughing. <laughs> 
and there's about ten blokes singing it. I think you cheeky bastard. <laughs> and it cut on after that. Um, but generally, and so anyway, I went to see a psychologist. Uh, I went to see a psychologist for the first time in my life, and you know, Alex Ferguson. Alex Ferguson had always been my psychologist. Parents had been, you know, get on with it, you know, that sort of. Um, and you know, it, it helped. And I remember uh, my coach helped. I remember, you know, just little things that helped me. You know, in terms of, you know, when you made a mistake, when you made a mistake in a game, and it was actually I'd made two mistakes in the Liverpool games. And I always remember this psychologist saying to me, "If you're going to make, if 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 you play a football match, what are you going to do in the evening after the football match?" I said, "Well, I usually go home and have a Chinese takeaway." It's true. <laughs> and he said, "But if you, if you lose the game, what you're going to go home and have a Chinese takeaway?" He said, well, "Why don't you just relax? You know, if you make a mistake, you're still going to go home and have a Chinese takeaway and sit down and see your family. It's going to happen." And he put it into perspective that actually mistakes were okay. Not making them regularly, but actually that everyone made mistakes. And the understanding and the mechanism to cope, to be able to make a mistake and then recover from it was an important lesson for me. And I went to see a psychologist, and that next pre-season, I remember the psychologist saying, the only way you're going to come out of this is through hard work. You've got to work harder than you've ever worked in your life before. And there's no sort of magic messages. He said, go into training earlier, stay later, have more massages, have more recovery, eat better. You know, Ryan Giggs used to have a saying when, he, when the tough parts of the season came, Take the butter off your toast. That could, no, that's the one, no, that's the 0.1% that you're looking for, that edge. And that's the, that to me was the, that edge, no, serious. Because all of a sudden, when you, no, when, you when, you behave, when you behave really well, when you prepare really well, when you train really well, when you train harder and longer than anybody else, you're going onto that field saying, I deserve to play well, by the way. Because I'm, I've trained harder, worked harder, I've fought harder. I've, and all of a sudden, my confidence started to come back, and it was through work, and it was through hard work. And it was, it was the psychologist and the coach that said, look, trust in your work. And to me, that was the biggest mistake I've made. And it was a lesson from there on in. I never let confidence affect me ever again until I went to Valencia and lost a few games. <laughs> <laughs> but as a football player. And then off the pitch, my biggest mistake off the pitch. I've made a few recently. So I opened a, I opened a bar lounge, nightclub in Manchester that I should never have got involved in. You wouldn't have thought it, would you, player opens nightclub, doesn't work. I mean, okay, well. <laughs> Mr. Sensible Gary Neverly, he went and did it. Uh, I opened a restaurant and should have closed it. Uh, you know, and, and, you know they, so those sort of things. You know, I'm still making mistakes. I'm still young. I'm 43. I'm, you know, as, a, as a person now who takes on I'm still young in sort of my new life that I'm taking on. I'm still young as a pundit, so I'm still, I've had to start to learn again, and so I am still making mistakes that, you know, have an impact. Well, Gary, according to my laptop here, we've reached the end of the interview. Oh, thank you. <laughs> a massive round of applause, absolutely amazing. Gary Neville, everybody. And, of course, huge thanks to Cadbury, who teamed up with us for tonight's event. As you know, Cadbury are the official snack partner to the Premier League. Looking forward to the 2019 Cadbury show already. Go and get yourselves a drink. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.